Hi there. I'm Chloe Kent, reporter for Generics Bulletin and InVivo, and welcome to another episode of the InVivo podcast. Joining me today is Melanie Lee, CEO of UK-based medical research charity LifeArc. LifeArc, which uses its own investment portfolio to fund its activities, started out in 1992 as MRC Technology, commercialising scientific research funded by the UK Medical Research Council. The charity was involved in a collaboration in the mid-2000s to humanise the antibody-based cancer therapy Keytruda, now marketed by Merck, for which it eventually netted royalties of only $1.3 billion, and has been involved in the development of several other significant molecules. These include Tysabri, Biogen's drug for multiple sclerosis, Roche's rheumatoid arthritis treatment Actemra, and Entivio, which is marketed by Cicada for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Now, Melanie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I can't wait to find out more about LifeArc and how it operates. Could you start by just giving me a bit of background on yourself and your career up to this point? So I started my career in academic research and I was I was what you call a functional geneticist working with yeast. When I worked in Paul Nurse's lab, I was working on the third microorganism, a third yeast, and he works on cell cycle. And I took on a project there that linked yeast cell cycle with human cell cycle. In a cancer institute, that was an amazing link. And that amazing link meant that the world of yeast genetics actually could be used as a template in many cases for understanding human cancer, human cell genetics. After my academic career, I went into Glaxo, decided that that would be good alongside my bringing up a family. And I was lucky enough to bring up two boys whilst I pursued my career. And I went from Glaxo after 10 years to head up research in Celtech, biotech in the UK. Celtech was acquired ultimately by UCB, where I'd I'd run global R&D as well. So I got the development experience and global experience there. And then I decided after 11 years collectively to go and be a CEO, understand the CEO role. And in doing that, what I really wanted to do was understand funding for the sector. So I did two CEO positions. One, uh, I took on an an existing company and got it through some troubled times to being sold. And the second one, I founded a company with um, a venture company alongside me. That was that was Syncona alongside me to found Nightstar. Having then decided I understood the CEO role, I went back having been on the board of several companies as well, uh, alongside all these jobs, into BTG PLC. That was a medtech company, and I headed up R&D there. And that was fascinating to learn the difference between medtech and pharma. Following that, I decided I had enough breadth underneath me to really understand across sector working, across technology working, and the life opportunity came up and to transform LifeArc into the potential organisation that it, it is becoming and that it is today with the Kitruda royalty coming in was a challenge I couldn't walk away from. So that's where we are today. I'd love to start just by talking through LifeArc's business model. Obviously, you're a medical research charity, which is quite a unique setup. How does this model compare and contrast to, say, a venture capital firm? LifeArc 
is a registered charity. But it moves in the world really that's very closely aligned with pharma, industry, biotech and actually ventures. Our mission, our purpose is translation and translation is that step between something a researcher has found and discovered in in the process of their research uh, to actually saying what in that research has actually got potential to be a product for patients or to in some way improve a patient's life. So we're different in that we are absolutely not for profit and we balance that three offerings of science advice and funding all to try and make that transition from what's this basic research telling us and then where could it go and how do we make it happen so our, our purpose because it's it's partly philanthropic it is absolutely impact for patients and as instruments of our delivery we have grant giving collaborative science and investment. We differ from a venture company because we have these different elements to pull together to make impact for patients as our number one priority, albeit that of course we invest in small companies for their ultimate success and we will ultimately share in that success. But then those profits come back into the whole charitable aim of improving lives for patients. You mentioned three different ways in which you will donate the money. Would you be happy to just talk me through those and maybe what the benefits are of working in this way and having these three different models of donation? Absolutely. Uh, yes, LifeArc has always worked closely from its roots with Medical Research Council when we were Medical Research Council Technology, always worked closely with academics. And academic science and industrial science are quite differently learnt. And so most of us who work in LifeArc have a, an industrial background. And the fundamental difference is that the researchers use grant money and they research deeply around a topic of interest, usually a deep area of science. Sometimes, not always, that deep area of science is absolutely explicitly focused on a particular outcome, but not always. Sometimes it's just deep mechanism. If you then put academic scientists uh, into, um, the, into a room with industrial scientists, industrial scientists will ask the question, and where can this research go? What could be the ultimate benefit to humans or to life sciences with this research? So, for the research space, when we meet some early but not and not mature science, we can give philanthropic grants as we're trying to help um, academics and maybe sometimes very small charities as well who funded research at a certain point. We give them a bit more to say if we actually do this experiment and this experiment and this experiment, we'll probably get sufficient tangible evidence that this is going to move further. Um, and actually has potential to be a product. The second way we can really contribute is by combining forces with those small charities or research teams and actually starting to work on very specific projects that can identify assets that could be pulled out. And we can put our resources to those. We can help them do things that are within our expertise, but also we can actually link them with an external community and help to fund that to actually get uh, whatever ex expertise they need to access 
And now we're wrapping those up in what we call translational challenges. And translational challenges are large programmes with many projects that we probably spend upwards of 100 million pounds on over five to seven years. Those are all around central patient problems. And there may be two or three problems that we identify that we really believe uh, we could do something about by putting the right community together. And we can be explicit about that later. And then the third arm is when you get further down the line with actually understanding assets that have progressed a bit further, you possibly are on the cusp of being able to form a company or you want to license the asset. If it's on the cusp of forming a company, then what? that's when you start to enter into that early ventures world and you go to the early ventures teams and convince them of the opportunity that those assets afford. And if they were wrapped up in a little company with some seed money and then some Series A money, which we often will give alongside other finances, funding authorities, funding bodies, other venture firms, and then uh, we're actually investing in those companies to go forwards. So they're actually quite different, although they go from philanthropy through to investment, but all the time they're looking at the patient impact. Why do you choose to target products at such early stages rather than things that are maybe later down the line in development? We choose to target early stage translation because that is an area of huge unmet need. So when um, I was cutting my teeth in, in the industry and in my career, large pharma companies, there were a lot of them based in the UK that had very big R&D facilities. And in those, we did a lot of translation research. In fact, it's where we learned most of our skills. As time's gone on, those pharma companies have pulled away from that very early area. And particularly in the UK, we don't have so many of those big research bases. And so the opportunity for work to be translated from that very early stage in the research arena through um, it with companies is actually now now quite a gap. LifeArc, because we're mostly industrially trained people, actually can fill that gap. And with our funding that was that came from the Keytruda royalty, that was our opportunity to sort of form a an organization that we felt could actually really bridge. And so it, it has to be early because that's where the highest risks are. And by not being a commercial organisation, we can actually take some of those risks. Your self-funding, so you use um, your investment portfolio to then support other activities going forward. How does this function in practice? So LifeArc monetized the Trude royalty stream in, I think it was about 2018. The, the express purpose of doing that in one event was so that we could actually really put in place a robust strategy. So in terms of money um, out of the door, our strategy is actually at the moment to really escalate our spending through really getting to grips with translational challenges and setting ourselves up to really be this translation engine. In the event that we're ultimately successful with uh, downstream investments, say in new companies, when we do get money back, that money will just go straight back into the money available for further investments. So the big investment engines for us are either grants, which we give with no uh, at the moment required returns, and that's how we would like the philanthropic space to be. 
translational challenges, which will be largely uh, activities using our own funds, but ultimately as we start to move assets towards uh, the patient and towards the commercial arena, we would like to have a means of actually sharing in ultimate success. But again, any profits we make, anything that comes back into the organisation goes back into being a resource for our funding. So that's why we're charitable and that's why we're a not-for-profit. LifeArc has recently announced that it has jointly awarded um, a million pounds along with the Motor Neuron Disease Association and the My Name's Doddy Foundation to progress the development of two gene and cell therapy projects at University College London. Would you be able to talk me through how you sort of went through the process of selecting them? The, the motor neurone disease translational challenge has, has, has actually looked at the issue of motor neurone disease and what it is that happens to patients and what, it, what, what is the real problem surrounding that disease. And the, what we've identified is that the clinical manifestation at which point patients get diagnosed with disease um, is actually very very late in the process and they they often don't have very long to live and their deterioration is very rapid so obviously in the motor neurone disease translational challenge one of the big opportunities obviously would be to cure which would be nice but actually to get cures means researching probably with patients that are a lot earlier in their disease journey and not at that late stage. So one of the biggest unmet needs for um, the motor neurone disease population is actually very early diagnosis and understanding who might be at risk and uh, who, for example, might be able to avoid getting the disease or what are the very early signs and symptoms and what are the underlying mechanisms of that disease. So we want to work in that area alongside clinicians to try and identify those parameters. And then how do we decide who we work with? Well, we work with those who are very passionate about the area, very well known. And you can see from the, the public knowledge of motor neurone disease that the Motor Neurone Disease Association, my name's Dodie, and the the big sort of personal push that many of the victims of MND actually have behind the initiative to improve patient lives. Those are the things that um, help us put the right community together and say, if we get this right community, we'll be able to address that problem, early diagnosis, better disease causation, and uh, open up that patient population at risk to be the patient population that you can now look for cures amongst by opening the doors of those therapeutically interested organisations. This is quite a big question, so it might be <laughs> a little tricky to answer, but what would you say is the biggest real world impact that LifeArc donations have actually led to so far? The biggest real world impact that LifeArc's work has led to probably stems from the work we did on Keytruda. So Keytruda came to us as an antibody that needed to be humanised. That means the antibody needed to actually have sequence changes that would change its uh, antigenicity, the tolerance of tolerability of the antibody in man, in humans. Um, and 
And in that's that's a step that LifeArc's very capable, LifeArc scientists are very capable in. So LifeArc scientists took the original antibody and they made it one, they humanized it to make sure that it would probably be very well tolerated in man. Now you try and do this without changing fundamental properties of the target protein for that antibody, for example. So that antibody was humanized by um researchers within LIFARC and then given back to the companies. And a couple of companies later, after a couple of M&As, uh, the antibody ended up in the hands of Merck. And Merck, by then, the science had moved on sufficiently for Merck to understand it was probably a very high potential anti-cancer treatment. Now, that is such an amazing drug that it's actually able to really save people who are really at the late stage of cancer treatment and it's been combined and is being combined with many other drugs actually and, and having remarkable impact to save lives. That drug has treated over a million patients now so I would say it's hard for LifeArc to contribute beyond something like that However, what we have to say is lecanemab is another of those antibodies. This is the one that's now being uh, just got accelerated approval by the FDA for treatment of early Alzheimer's patients. So whilst there's quite a way to go before that can actually be uh, understood how to be used effectively, again, it's another antibody that that life arc humanized and that's now in the hands of people who can make those downstream decisions. I understand you have a number of domains through which you measure your impact. Could you talk me through those? How do they help you determine success? With with our, with our new strategy, LifeArc is uh, it's important that we learn how to measure our impact on patients. So what we're undertaking is a project that really helps us uh, be able to measure and articulate that impact. So we always start with the patient problem, as I've mentioned to you, and collaborate with a group of patients and their clinicians and ask, really just find out about their patient experience and what the unmet need is. By doing that, we're gathering a lot of knowledge. So the first impact domain that we're looking at is knowledge. What is it we need to know? What is it the unmet need? What is it that we need to help patients with? The second domain is the ecosystem that we can pull together because obviously LifeArc is what it's a 250 eventually 300 person organization needs to be very collaborative with our resources and so we have to pull a great ecosystem together and so in actually working out what the unmet need is we then say and what's the ecosystem and then we ask the third question of assets what can this asset class be what of the what type of asset are we going to deliver into the patients to answer some of their problems? Is it a diagnostic? Is it early access to diagnosis? Is it speed of um, access to diagnosis? Is it getting to the to the expert straight away without the without a torturous journey? Is it better understanding of their community and putting them in touch with other patients? Is it information? And then sort of further on downstream, are there some devices or are there some therapies um, that we can um, make more readily available to them? So these are all things that we we look at in terms of assets. And then the, the fourth um, area is, is that of 
economics and economy. So we, we measure that in two ways. There's two aspects of this. One is in the course of our work around, for example, motor neurone disease and building little companies, what are we doing for the uh, scientific community, the patient community, the economy? What, how many jobs are we creating? How much wealth are we uh, creating? How much co-investment are we making? But, but in and of that project, itself to deliver any asset you have to understand the economics of delivery what healthcare system you're delivering into uh, how ready is that healthcare system to accept that how much is your product going to be can you manufacture it or formulate it in a way that's particularly suited to the environment into which it's got to go so that's our fourth impact domain and then um, the fifth one really is about that that longer term sustainability how do we ensure that what we do has longevity associated with it so that we really can keep keep being there for the research engines that exist particularly in the UK but also elsewhere and actually really keep helping with translation what are you most excited about for the company sort of as we move ahead into 2023? What I'm excited about for LifeArc is the fact that we actually have started our translational challenges. We launched two last year. So we la launched chronic respiratory infection, which looks at bronchiectasis and CF patients, cystic fibrosis patients, whose quality of life by virtue of exacerbation, so one exacerbation after another by a new pathogen, puts them from being healthy to unwell very fast and is very disruptive for their lives. They then have to suffer the consequences of having another infection. That's an unsustainable situation. It's very, um, uh, it, it's a situation which surely we can alleviate in some way. That one we started and that's up and running with some great collaborators. And then as we mentioned, the motor neurone disease translational challenges started and that's up and running with some great collaborators. Again, as we said earlier, looking particularly for signs and symptoms, earlier diagnosis and better understanding of underlying cause. We're actually on the cusp of launching a third one, which will be broadly global health with an infection theme and probably there'll be several scientific themes under that one that will form the basis of focal challenges as i said if you actually focus in on a challenge you can be quite specific about why life art can help and what community we need to pull together to help and the other exciting thing is we've got two more agreed translational challenges that we agreed with our trustees last December. And they're on the cusp of growing now. They're being um, resourced. Uh, we're looking for leaders of those and they will be launched later this year. So that's very exciting, too. So this podcast is set to be pushed live just before um, International Day of Women and Girls in Science. So I wanted to finish by asking you um, how you feel being a woman has impacted your experience of working in this field. I've always felt very privileged working in the science community, in academia and in industry uh, as a woman, although over my time in the industry, particularly I've seen changes. I've seen so many changes that have facilitated women working and balancing. I've also seen a lot of societal changes as well. So as a woman working in industry, we were very much in the minority. Um, 
But actually, all the way through, we were in the minority and then particularly so in senior positions. Today, I think you'll find that most of entry level and mid level jobs uh, are equally women and men. And I, I think the requirements to accommodate women easily in the workplace and allow their freedom to work as they need to, freedom to work in their own time, that flexibility to balance all aspects of life. I think that suits a lot of men too, a lot of people now. So I think we've found that technology has assisted enormously that uh, we can move away from a be seen culture where you always had to be under somebody's um, purview in an office situation or a lab situation. Obviously in labs, people have to be in the labs to do their work, but the all-round ability to be more flexible is there. So that's great. When I have been challenged in organisations with comments that may be in some way judgmental or could be seen judgmental, I've never actually taken them as something to be offended by. I've taken them as something to be a great challenge, an opportunity. And I, I've always said to myself, OK, so that's what someone thinks. Well, that's interesting. So how do I outperform their criticism or their assumption or their presumption? So uh, I have always given advice to women to be clear about what they want, have confidence about what they love, because if they really love something, they'll probably be able to do it in a very positive, motivated way. To realise that challenges can actually be gifts and not to be taken as things to set you back. And that's what I've always said. I've said, think of outperform, be confident. There are tricks, however, that I was told as a young woman in the workplace that have been useful for me that I took to heart. One of them was sit forward at a table instead of sitting back. So give yourself a physical presence. Another was to lower the tone of my voice when I actually got a chance to speak because somehow a, a more controlled lower tone voice is, is more impactful. Thirdly, more important, I think, is actually make sure you know what you're going to say when you're given the floor. So don't then splutter and burble and be unprepared. So I think there are tricks. And people, again, if you're given that advice, is don't take, don't, don't be disgruntled about the advice. Just think it through and think what, what of that applies to me and what could I do to actually uh, be in, a, in, in that higher performing situation? Not always easy to talk about, to be honest, Chloe. Sometimes people don't want that information. But the truth is, my experience is sometimes those challenges really help to, to, to put you in a stronger position. One of the best pieces of advice I got as a female was to set goals through my life. Because when faced with a situation where you are being interviewed, for example, it might be that you're somewhat reticent or a little withdrawn or, or a little bewildered or, or even scared, which is always normal. However, I found that after taking this advice that having set goals for myself, sometimes those goals would come out as words that I was speaking to people, which actually displayed an ambition. And not naturally being someone who would talk about my ambitions, I found that very helpful. And uh, I actually have a personal experience of that when I was being recruited for 
a biotech company that in fact was a FTSE 100 company at the time. And I was rather junior for the research position, director position that was being hunted for. At the right moment, I said, well, I actually really have this ambition to be a director before I'm 40. And I don't think at the time I put together the fact that this was a role for a FTSE 100 directorship with with the role I was applying. And I was offered the, the research director role on this FTSE 100 company. And that was a fantastic learning. It was a fantastic opportunity. And of course, once you get to that, then you're actually seen as somebody who's got the experience for board positions from there on in. So really, my advice to people, especially to girls, is set set goals or anyone who tends to be a little shyer, set yourself goals and actually just learn to put them into context to show your ambition. 